Hello listeners, this is Timo Sazo, editor and producer of the Faculty Podcast. Just wanted to let you know that our faculty is working on a new series on the Apostles' Creed, and this is the first installment. Also, enjoy our new music. Hey everybody, welcome to the RTS Washington Faculty Podcast, part of a 50 plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president here at RTS Washington. I'm joined today by Dr. Gray Sutanto, assistant professor of systematic theology here at RTS. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. Great to have you. I'm also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the D.C. area. Hey, Paul. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you all. Great to have you. I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Lee, professor of Old Testament and dean of students here at RTS. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. Good to see you. Good to see you. And I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, academic dean and professor of New Testament here at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hey, great to be here. It's great to have everybody here, and we're going to need all hands on deck because we're starting a series on a new topic. We're going to start working through the Apostles' Creed, and uh, I think probably many people here uh, who take classes at RTS are are used to the work that we're doing here. We'll be aware of what the Apostles' Creed is, but we, we hope over the course of this series not only to sort of unpack what it is and what its role is in the church, but also why are each of these individual articles of the Apostles' Creed so important and what do they mean? How do do they speak to the Christian life and how do they give a faithful and useful expression of the teaching of Scripture? And so we're going to start today with just kind of a basic overview of this conversation and how we hope to come at it from our individual disciplines. And one of the things we want to do is start off, first of all, and just answer this question, why is the creed or why are creeds of importance? Why is it important for us to gather together the sort of singular central tenets of the faith and articulate them in this way, in this kind of delineated propositional way that we find here in the Apostles' Creed? Why is it important for us to be able to do that as a community and hold it up and point at it and say, this is it. This, this is what we believe. So let me start with Dr. Sutanto. Gray, can you unpack just a little bit of why creeds, and by extension confessions, are of value? What purpose do they serve to the Christian today? Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. I think first thing we've got to say is that the Bible itself prompts us to use creeds and confessions. We take a look at passages like Psalm 145, for example, which says that we have to proclaim the name and works of God from one generation to another, which presupposes that there is a stable pattern of sound words that is transmitted from one generation to another that can be communicated, that could be catechized, and that could be passed down from generation to generation. Second Timothy 1.13 also, we see Paul talking to Timothy, saying that he has to guard the pattern of sound words. He has to guard this deposit of truth that has been handed, out to, handed down to him. 
And that's the task of the pastor. The task of the pastor is to delineate orthodoxy. And I think that's what the creeds are. So the Bible itself warrants it. And the Bible also gives us a few examples of its own creeds, right? Jesus summarized the law and the prophets with the double command of loving God and loving your neighbor. We see Paul also in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about uh, what is of first importance, the gospel that has been handed down to him, right? That, that there are witnesses to this, that Jesus Christ had died for sinners and that on the third day he rose again. So the Bible over and over again prompts it, it warrants it, it, it does it for us. And I think we should therefore see the creeds and the confessions as a way in which we can summarize the Bible in Orthodox language that is universal, Catholic in scope, that uh, unifies Christians everywhere together because we have one Lord, one baptism, one faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see is the creeds not adding to the Bible or uh, um, as if it's a kind of extra mental tradition that is layered on top of the Bible, but rather it's simply, it's simply a, summarize of the, a summary sorry, of the Bible that is warranted by the Bible itself. And so I, I like to think of, think of it as a kind of cheat code to the best insights of the Christian tradition, uh, best exegetical insights of the Christian tradition. What did they see in the Bible? What did yeah. the best theologians see in the Bible? And so uh, it's useful for us to simply read these creeds as a shorthand for that, as a shortcut to their best conclusions of their exegesis. On that idea of biblical warrant, I'd add 2 Peter 3, 1 to your list. It's really an interesting passage as, as Peter kind of reflects on entering the, the age in which false prophets are going to wage war against the church and every kind of opposition is going to be thrown up against our, our barracks, as it were. He says, but you remember. And the, the kind of code word throughout, the theme throughout the book is in the midst of the church's wars, spiritual warfare, to remember what was said. Remember the words of the apostles, the words of the Lord through your apostles uh, as, a, as a kind of a refrain in our life. And I love that idea of memory, not only because it kind of captures the the ethos of what we're supposed to do as church to, to, to cling to something that has already happened, but also because creeds can be memorized. Um, many of us have the apostles creed straight in our head. P Peter, for example, I mean, you can't see him, but he is raising his hand. He knows, he knows that apostles creed. I, I do as a matter of fact, uh, but uh, I was actually raising my hand because I had a, a question for Scott actually, because I know Scott, you teach the, uh, the intro to pastoral and theological studies, and it's an important class. And it's actually whenever I talk to students, uh, I tell them, you know, that's probably one of the first classes you want to take. And and I know you talk about creeds uh, and the importance of creeds there. So you know, I'd be curious to know what you say, what you think about the importance of creeds and, well, and why we need them. Yeah, I mean, in this discussion too. You talk about biblical warrant. Sometimes, particularly in Old Testament circles, people will say, well, these, this kind of propositional articulation of the faith is a Hellenistic or later way of thinking. And yeah, you go back to Deuteronomy 6, for instance, the Shema, you know, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Or Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's the most quoted verse in the Bible, which shows its kind of creedal value. And these are both kind of propositional articulations of the truth of belief or the content of belief. And this goes back to a pre-Hellenistic period, this idea of being able to clearly articulate a belief in a propositional statement 
has a, a value that I would say is, is somewhat cross cross linguistic transcultural, right? And and it does serve that purpose. I mean, as you guys have already mentioned, of, of sort of rooting us in a clear articulation of faith that can help us in all of the other ways that we articulate faith, whether that's through testimony, personal testimony, or redemptive historical explanation or literary analysis of a text, the creed, you know, or more, actually I should say now kind of more practical to Christians today, you know, ethical and moral dilemmas, the creed helps guide us and um, sort of give us those safety constraints that we require in order to have that conversation in a lively and vibrant way. You know, the example that I use in class is you know that right down the road here we have this chesapeake bay bridge which goes over this huge expanse of the chesapeake bay and we talk about how would you drive over that bridge if there were no guardrails on either side right you'd go you go five miles per hour down the middle of the road right clutching the wheel and sweating the sweaty palms you know but because of the guardrails you can go 55 over the bridge right and uh and enjoy the views and you know their creeds kind of have a similar thing because a creed they have a similar value because they because they give us this kind of delineation of the belief of the Christian church we can then see kind of where the playing field is and enjoy the freedom of the discussion and exploration you know and it's not just the the apostles creed which is a great version of that a great example of it but all of the other creeds that we have that have been tried and true over time and have come down to us that's right and i think if we don't use the creeds and confessions to summarize the scriptures we'll have our own private creeds and confessions the moment we say anything to summarize the bible that's our creed that's a right. creed and so why not use the best inside of the church uh church tradition instead to help us do that exactly yeah so let's talk about the apostles creed you know, it has somewhat of, a, of an ambiguous origin. It's coming out of, um, in some ways, sort of the, the fog of history, <laughs> the shadows of history. Though we do have some earlier examples of it in the, the, what's called the Roman symbol or the Roman creed. We see that there are some different editions of it that come together and are sort of drawn together. But we're looking, you know, kind of 5th century uh, AD is when we start to see it emerging and see discussion of it um, emerging in, in the Christian church. And, you know, one of the, uh, I think it's Rufinus, uh, who, who reflects on it having been written by the apostles themselves. And, of course, there's no way of, uh, of corroborating that statement. Um, and it's one of those ones that has the kind of sound of, of legend to it. And yet, with that said, we find it being in common use in the Christian church by that time. And people are reflecting on it and referring to it and, and its value as an articulation of Christian belief. But what we want to do here, instead of sort of spending time in its historical context, I want to talk just briefly about how it's used today, because it's, it's a remarkable old statement of faith. Okay, I mean, we're talking millennia old, and it raises this question, what does this have, have for us today? What use does it have in the church, particularly this, this particular creed, that is the Apostles' Creed? And so I want to open up the floor how is this for you all who have been pastors and uh, teachers in a seminary and fathers and husbands, how is the Apostles' Creed, what, what's the function that it's served in your life as you've seen it um, used in a variety of different contexts in which you serve? So Scott, I'll go first if that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. I'm afraid everyone is going to say, 
what I'm going to say, and then I'm going to have to say what everyone else said. <laughs> just say ditto. So yeah. humble. So humble. But um, <laughs> I am humble. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> so uh, just two very quick comments. More could be said. Sometimes in biblical studies, there's a kind of suspicion towards theology and so forth. And uh, some will caricature theology as imposing uh, t- teaching on a text instead of letting text speak for itself and so forth. And similarly, others have said that theology narrows our ability to hear what the text says. In my experience, it's been exactly the opposite. I think that without the creeds and confessions, my interpretation would have been limited to my immediate culture, academic environment, and personality. So the creeds have been immensely helpful as a quote-unquote biblical scholar, just in considering things I really would not have. And I think that sort of bleeds into my second point. Uh, at our church, we do uh, incorporate the catechisms into our uh, liturgy, and uh, we don't use, and not, not that innovative curricula are bad, but we are trying to catechize our kids. And the reason why we uh, do so is because we want to concretely remind our people that the church has been around for a long time. It's not like it began with our church and will end with our church. And so we compare studying the confessions, like participating in a Bible study that transcends um, you know, time, place. And that's been received fairly well. I, I think that it can't be a one-off. You know, as a pastor, you have to reiterate that we belong to the greater church. That's why, uh, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in the church, right? That's uh, believing that, uh, believing in the saints that have come before you. And so those two. It reminds me of a kind of like a pastoral anecdote in my own when I when my own pastoral days when I was a real pastor that we had this a, uh, a a gentleman joining the church and he had just a ton of questions and really struggled with should he join the church because you know he wasn't sure about this Calvinism thing and he wasn't sure about certain ethical issues that the church the church most of the members of the church took a stand on. Um, politics got thrown in it. We had a, you know, we were not a political church, but we had a lot of members who had very strong political opinions uh, at the time. And he was just worried about that. And we could go back to him in the mem- in the, kind of the membership class and, and in our counseling and conversations with him and say, yes, but do you believe the Apostles' Creed? Because that, th- this is our core, that you, we, we are a body of diversity united around this this statement and statements like it, um, and that that had a unifying effect. The the creed, which can seem limiting in some ways, actually had a unifying effect for us in the midst of the church. It allowed us to bring in people that might not otherwise feel comfortable because they could say this crazy thing: "I believe in God the Father Almighty." Who maker of heaven and earth. They could say that, and that's what bound us together. Yeah, if I can just add to what Tommy just said, just speaking from like the pastoral like goodness or the utility that our congregation has enjoyed, our people often ask questions, and they're surprised. I mean, they shouldn't be that these questions have been asked and answered really well. And so when we uh, point them back to the catechisms, they're almost surprised, oh, the answer has been here all along, right? And so helping them to see it's not really a new question, and there are many 
good saints that have thought about these questions biblically, theologically for many years, right? That's created more of a reception towards the uh, creeds and catechisms. Yeah, and I think for me, it's been such a reminder for my own ministry and my own work as a theologian that as theologians, we don't just get to make stuff up, right? That this is something that we confess, this is something that we receive, we're accountable to the body of truth that we've received from church history, from the scriptures, but also we're accountable to the God that is confessed in the creeds and, and the confessions that we have here, that this is a Trinitarian God, that we can't make this stuff up. And as theologians, how dare we if we make stuff up, right? That we, we can't just go up in the pulpit or to the lecture room and say whatever that we want to say about God, because God first speaks to us. And this is exactly what we're saying when we are teaching these catechisms and teaching these, these creeds and confessions to the church. You know, we talk about the unifying force of the creed. You know, the fact that it's in the form that it's in, I think, makes sense. You hear people say, well, why, you know, you're cutting out all these other genres that the Bible use, like parables or stories or poems. You know, why do we have this creed? And, and most of our creeds and confessions, honestly, if not all, are written in this kind of format. And there is something to this format of, clearly articulating the facts, right? Sort of the, and I know facts is a freighted term, but the content of faith. It has a unifying function that other genre don't, like story. And we've talked about story a good bit in this, in this podcast, you know, but the idea of articulating redemptive history in a creedal or confessional way sounds good. And we can talk about how we all are coming from a shared story and the shared story of redemption but yet, if you actually think about kind of writing it down in a way that has sort of a creedal value, as soon as you start thinking about writing down the story in that way that we can all point to it and say, yes, this is me, right? This is what I believe. This is what we believe. As soon as you start to do that, what happens to the story? It'll start to become a series of statements about the, the facts of the story, right? Because it, it's just, it has a way of delineating or, you know, uh, distilling down statements in a way that people can point to it and say, this is what I'm about. And it's not to take away from the story. It's not to take away from the fact that we're all a part of this grand redemptive drama, but rather it's serving this very specific purpose. You know, and I think the Apostles' Creed, every time we recite it in my church, and we do regularly in my church, every time I recite it, I am in all the ways that you guys just pointed out, I'm just struck again by the community that I share, not only cross you know, geopolitically and linguistically here in the church today, but also cross temporally, right? I mean, the fact that we share this belief with the saints of the past and we're coming together with this shared statement. And as I read it, I'm, re I'm just reinvigorated that, yeah, these are, these are the things that I believe, right? This is the way that I believe God saved us and, uh, and it articulates his plans for the world. Yeah, Scott, I, you know what, that's so great. And I'm so glad you mentioned how, you know, that uh, the, the creed has that way to kind of uh, remind us of our, our, of our unity and of confession that crosses over history as well as uh, ethnic barriers. And uh, it's such a great reminder, especially with all of the stuff going on, to be reminded that we have as Christians, you know, that one confession that binds us stronger than blood and and ethnicity, and that's great. I was just thinking also, uh, you know, I appreciate you, all of you real pastors talking about the, the memorization power of the creed and, and how important that is, not just for 
us as 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 people, but like our children, to be able to memorize the creed and you know they're they're going to memorize stuff out there. They're going to learn stuff that you that they're going to remember. Whether it's like a a Pokemon theme song, you know, like my children or or whatever. I mean, you know, if they're going to memorize stuff, it better they memorize the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, or better Psalm twenty three, or or something that you know that'll stay with them and uh, that they can recite and then refer back to when we have you know questions or theological things that arise that, that they really need answers to. My kids uh, have a great rendition of The Room Where It Happens. So from I'll Hamilton. With y'all sometime. They've, they've, they've fully memorized it. <laughs> oh, I thought they'd adjusted it to talk about the Apostles' Creed. They've also memorized the Apostles' Creed, but their rendition of The Room Where It Happens is something to be seen. <laughs> well, actually, as I'm saying it, it just... Uh, you know, I'm reminded that the church where I worship at, we don't recite the creed consistently. In fact, I can't remember the last time we did. And it's actually something I may start to incorporate as we're talking about it now in my own daily family devotion, that maybe what we'll do is start, you know, reciting the creed. I mean, you say it enough over and over again, they're going to memorize it eventually. And, and there's real power to that. There's real benefit. It's a very accessible creed too. And it gives you the opportunity to touch down into scripture so often um, it, I think it, it, we've used it in our family f- for that reason. The the catechism and confession can be so intimidating just because it's it's monumental, right? It's just l- longer, mm-hmm. and the Apostles' Creed is gets at all of the key elements of our faith while at the same time being a, a little bit more accessible, especially for for youngers. Yeah, that that's definitely true. I mean, that I think is the benefit of, of a creed confession. It has a quick, reliable, biblical answer to a very specific question. So if you ask something like, what is baptism? You know, our, well, maybe not the Apostles' Creed, but, but the, our confessional uh, history has an answer to that. That's nice and clear, biblical. To just throw the Bible to someone and say, you know, read this to answer that question is just not very practical. I mean, or 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 pastoral. And so, and, and the Apostles' Creed is so clear, maybe with the exception of the descended to hell thing, which I'm sure we'll have a nice, robust discussion about. Uh, you know, each line is very clear. It's understandable. A child can understand it, and, and it's great. There's also sort of, and maybe I'm overreaching in terms of my Old Testament poetic analysis, there is a certain poetic beat to the Apostles' Creed yeah. And it shows up in a variety of ways. I think that makes it easy to memorize and to articulate, or at least I should even say this, it's, it's pleasant to articulate. Like it's a pleasant thing to say, recognizing it's been translated and all of that. But if you notice, there is this kind of, there's this movement from sort of the grand historical to the father almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And you get to Jesus Christ and you're still kind of, you're talking these grand statements and all of a sudden it slows down. And it gets to suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, was buried. And it's like, like now we're measuring belief in terms of hours, right? And then it kind of blows up again into the whole of the church transhistorically, right? But there's this kind of central slowing down where you feel like if it was, if this was being represented artistically, it would be these, these kind of slow beat images that like slow down time 
you know, and I've always appreciated how it's, how it comes together. I mean, it just, it just comes together in this way that really draws our focus to Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Right. And that's kind of the central tenet around which the whole of the creed is rotating. And it's just beautiful. I think it's in addition to being good, well articulated and clear, it's also artful. It's artful language. I love that. That's, that's great. That is great. In fact, I'm going to, uh, write a, a blog now doing a Hebrew parallelism study on the, on the creed. I did not use the word chiasm for that reason <laughs> being accused, but no, yeah, I, I, there is kind of there. There is a parallelism, parallelism going on there. It's not unique to that creed, but it, there is something about the apostles creed in particular that is different than some of our other creeds. I was actually asked in a Sunday school class once, okay, why are we doing the apostles creed? It was a series on the Apostles' Creed. Why are we doing the, the Apostles' Creed? There's no gospel in it. Mm. And I, I kind of stood there and I, I was thinking about what, what are they getting at? And I think what they're getting at is the doctrine of justification by faith alone isn't in there. You don't have that kind of focus on, you know, the five points of Calvinism or sola fide, sola gratia. You know, the, that, that doctrinal and dogmatic language isn't in there. Rather, what this creed focuses on is the historical event. Mm. And, and it's a callback, I think, without trying to minimize the importance of sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christi, you know, without minimizing the importance of those things and justification by faith alone, it is a callback to the core of the faith as the event of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And and I like how your analysis, Scott, kind of really focuses on that. Like time slows down, comes to a, you know, comes to a kind of singularity at this Mm. point and, and splits time right between the before and after the latter days and the present, uh, the old age and the new age at the moment of Christ's resurrection. And, and that's what the creed really focuses on is that is the core of our, of our faith. The creed soliloquizes at the moment of Christ. It's beautiful, Scott. That's so great. Um, I, I'll tell you, I, I, you, I've said it for years and I, and as you just articulated, I thought, man, that is truly fantastic. Praise God. And the creed doesn't just get us to the event without also talking and rooting those events in the triune nature of God, right? There's a Trinitarian character to it. It roots all the events to ontological theological descriptions about who God is. He is the father almighty, that Jesus mm-hmm. Christ is our Lord, that we believe in the Holy spirit, that if you want to talk about the kind of scholastic language too, right? That odd intra uh, being of God, right? Is the root and cause for the, the missions of God that are in time so that we never really sever history from this divine ontology that lies in the back of history. I was going to say, Tommy, the way that you were describing the creed, you could almost say, and maybe it's because you're such a biblical theology guy, that it's the creed is almost more historia salutis than ordo salutis. Yeah, I think so. it's It's the sacredness or the centrality of the event. Hmm. Is it, which isn't a denial of the Ordo. It, it, the Ordo is an implication of that event. It, it is the necessary implication of that event. It is, it is our participation in that event. I think it just reflects you know, the kind of cross-biblical counsel 
the the import of the Historia Salutis being the groundwork of the Ordo. The Ordo has to be established upon the history of the events taking place and having happened, right? And you see that same concern here too, that it is, it is about the groundwork of the salvation that we have. And that's important. I mean, there's a reason why there's no doctrine of the church. There is no doctrine of scripture in the confession, and, and that's not in, intent. And as long as we remember that, I think we're okay. I think it's a callback to the, the gospel as good news. Well, news is news of what took place, what happened, you know, in Palestine in 33, 32 AD. And it's a reminder that that's the core of our faith and that everything else, all the propositional content, all the dogma that we believe is an outworking of that, of that core statement. Now I want to, Gray, you mentioned the sort of scholastic influence in it. And I, I want to think through a little bit of the influences that we see here before we wrap up this overview conversation, obviously early church and later church doctrine was influenced both by the language of scripture and then of influences coming from outside, which isn't to say, that they're bad, this, that they were influenced by the thought processes and the intellectual history of their own time. What else do we perceive here in the creed in terms of just Platonic, Aristotelian thought, any other influences that you see coming in in the way that the text is articulated? I mean, there's clearly a Trinitarian structure that you can't miss, okay? But is is this reflecting other sort of theological or philosophical movements going on in the early church? I think arguably you can say that the almighty language could be parsed out in terms of uh, the language of Aristotelian divine simplicity, right? That if God is really almighty, then he's without parts. He, there's no distinction in him between substance and accidents, between essence and existence and so on. And so for him to be truly almighty, his pure actuality. Now it's going to be different than the Aristotelian notion of the unmoved mover mm. because Aristotle's unmoved mover can't know creation because if an unchangeable being like him like or it knows a changeable creation like us, then it would compromise his pureness in Aristotelian thought. So it's quite different, but we can still borrow the language that Aristotle bequeathed to us. But also at the same time, there's a polemical concern in the creed as well. Thinking about, for example, that, that clause on God, the Father, Almighty, yes, but also the maker of heaven and earth. There is language there that I think implies creation ex nihilo, that God created out of nothing, that this is not a necessary emanation that came from God, that this is a freely willed act from God, that before creation, there was just God, and he was not alone, he was not lonely, right? Uh, But out of a free act of his benevolence, he chose to create. And so I think that goes against a lot of the uh, Neoplatonic uh, philosophies that may have been around when the creed was written. What do you think about, so we talked about how there's sort of a, in maybe a literary way, there's kind of a Christological center. It's got the Christ has the most set of him in the creed. And yet logically, the, the fact that you begin, you mentioned this ad intra leads to ad extra. It begins with the trans, sort of the transcendent nature of the heavenly father and then moves from there to the derived issues of the church. I'm just kind of looking at the general scope of it. Does that reflect a kind of Neoplatonic influence? I don't want to over, I don't want to overreach on that, but yeah, go please. Yeah. Not not necessarily. I think, I don't think it it protects the transcendence of God. 
and in fact doesn't identify him with any part of creation at all. And hence we're saying that God's economy is not going to uh, compromise at all God's ontology, that God remains independent, that he is ase, he enjoys the attribute of divine ascetes, absolutely of himself. And hence, I think that's why the, the creed starts there. It reminds us that what he has done in Jesus Christ is a gracious voluntary act rather than something that he needed to do to make himself better, something that he needed to do because he was lacking anything. But uh, it's actually something that he did in the economy of redemption precisely because he's a gracious God rather than a God who is in need of us in any way. So I think those two clauses at the very beginning of God, Almighty, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, situates the redemptive work of Jesus Christ within the broader affirmation of divine sovereignty and divine aseity. Mic drop. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so I look forward, brothers, to unpacking this down the road um, even more and sort of just delving into these individual elements that we've already begun to touch on so far. So stay with us in the weeks ahead. We are going to begin next time with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And we're going to talk through that language and its biblical and theological and philosophical implications as we've already begun to do today. And hopefully in bringing all of our different disciplines to the table, I'm really looking forward to being kind of stretched in my understanding of what it is exactly that the creed is saying. But I'm looking forward to this conversation with you all. And for everyone else, until then, take care. Nicely landed. Nicely landed. Yes, I never know God, what to that was say. Good. God, that was good. I paused. I, we can cut out the silent, the, the silence after gray. I paused. No, no, we should include else. it. We should include it oh. because that that brings out the rhetorical force. Um, that's okay. what gray does to you. <laughs> oh, you knew all that, man. I never know what to say in response to Paul. I only speak the truth. I only speak the truth, man. I don't know what to say.